So from the AADA, major depressive disorder uh, is on top there, and then we have uh, persistent depressive disorder, or PDD, formerly known as dysthymia, so you could take a look at that. So depression, or major depressive disorder, is a common and serious medical illness that negatively affects how you feel, how you think, and how you act. And fortunately, it's treatable. And depression causes feelings of sadness or loss of interest in activities that were once enjoyed. It can also lead to a variety of emotional and physical problems and can decrease a person's ability to function at work and at home. Depression symptoms can vary from mild to severe and include feeling sad or having a depressed mood, loss or interest in, in uh, activities, as we mentioned, changes in appetite, and that can be weight loss or gain that's unrelated to dieting. Trouble sleeping or sleeping too much, uh, loss of energy or increased fatigue, increase in purposeless physical activity, that could be like hand wringing or pacing, or slowed movements in speech, feeling worthless or guilty, difficulty thinking, and when it gets severe, even thoughts of death or suicide. And symptoms must be at least uh, persistent for two weeks before one would get a diagnosis of depression. So I wanted to get that out there, just so we, we have an idea of what we're talking about here. Dysthymia, on the other hand, is sometimes referred to as mild depression. It's less severe, has fewer symptoms than major depression. And with dysthymia, the, the depression symptoms can linger for a longer period of time than the two weeks, often for years or longer. And those who suffer from dysthymia can also experience periods of major depression. We call that sort of like a double depression or a double dip. And uh, as you can see, those are the percentages up there for depression and anxiety. Okay. Clicker's not working. Here we go. I just wanted to jump right into scripture off the bat after that nice prayer from Pastor Steve. Just put a few verses up there from Psalms 42. And just to sort of set the course as a congregation who's Christian and, and believes in Christ as our, our Savior, you know, if, and, and looks to the Bible for wisdom and truth in all things, including how we feel about ourselves and our moods and our, our emotions, if we just reflect on depression and things like anxiety just for a moment and troubles of the heart, Anyone who believes that as Christians and those faithful in God, that we will not or should not go through times of depression or anxiety or a troubled heart, we can just look into the Bible very clearly to see that people of great faith of that time have gone through similar dispositions. I know we believe that uh, David wrote most of the Psalms and there are perhaps other contributors, but take this passage here, for instance. I have the full one uh, written in my notes here, so I'll read that through. As the deer pants for the streams of water, so my soul pants for you, my God. My soul thirsts for God, for the living God. When can I go and meet with God? My tears have been my food day and night, while people say to me all day long, where is your God? These things I remember as I pour out my soul, how I used to go to the house of God under the protection of the mighty one, 
with shouts of joy and praise among the festive throng. Why, my soul, are you downcast? Why so disturbed within me? Put your hope in God, for I will yet praise him, my Savior and my God. My soul is downcast within me, therefore I will remember you from the land of the Jordan, the heights of Hermon, from Mount Mizar. Deep calls to deep in the roar of your waterfalls, all your waves and breakers have swept over me. By day the Lord directs his love, at night his song is with me. A prayer to the God of my life, I say to God my rock, why have you forgotten me? Why must I go about mourning, oppressed by the enemy? My bones suffer mortal agony as my foes taunt me, saying to me all day long, where is your God? Why, my soul, are you so downcast? Why are you disturbed within me? Put your hope in God, for I will yet praise him, my Savior and my God. I just think that's an incredible verse to just get our heads around what was in the hearts of people, even from back that time, who had incredible faith. And the answers come within the psalm as well, that he begins to turn and put his praise on, on his Savior. So as we talk about very clinical things today, we remember that God is at the center of this for us to sort of come back to as our, as our lead guidepost. So if you came to service, one of the services today, you, you've heard me say that anxiety is not very easily defined because it's really an umbrella term and incorporates so many different things. Now, it can be a temporary state of worry or fear related to an acute event or a situation like a test or witnessing a car accident that was on the milder side, let's say. But anxiety can also show up as a pervasive condition that over time can really disrupt our academic, occupational, or interpersonal functioning. And I like to add that it also interrupts our intrapersonal functioning. That is, you heard me say this, our relationship with ourselves. That, that may be the most uh, nagging piece of mental illness is really how it begins to change the way we relate to ourselves, the things that we say to ourselves, the go-to judgments and statements that come back on us. The condition usually manifests as worry, nervous or worrisome thoughts, stress-related physiological symptoms such as heart palpitations, sweating, dizziness, muscle tension, and it can result in certain unwanted behaviors when left unchecked. Things like hand wringing, pacing, compulsive behaviors like counting or door checking. And then, of course, in some, in some instances, substance use to self-medicate or alleviate our symptoms. And by substance use, that can be anything from drugs to alcohol to eating or you name it, fill in the blank. Whoops. So in this idea of not all anxiety looking the same, just give you a little idea of what we're looking at. And this percentages here reflect the whole of the US population. I, f I found them for most, but not all conditions. So how many folks uh, just looking at this list either know somebody maybe that might be dealing with something like this or have heard of these diagnoses before? Can I just get a read? Okay. So we're, we're an educated public. I mean, this is out in the news and literature, and 
we're fairly, I think, psychologically sophisticated in many ways as Americans. Uh, but just to give you a little idea of what we're talking about, so generalized anxiety disorder, GAD, tends to look like very chronic worry, and the worry is usually hard to stop, and usually takes place in a few bucket areas. Tends to be around finances, health, relationships, although it's not necessarily limited to that, but these worried preoccupations can, can sort of latch on to those topic areas. Panic disorder, if anybody's had a panic attack, they'll tell you that it's extremely de debilitating, very, very intense, it comes on very suddenly, and usually a panic attack would be associated or correlated with something that just seems out of the blue or non-residence. So something like, I was on the bus and just riding the bus that I normally do, and out of, out of nowhere, I just felt all these symptoms of sweating or heart palpitations, or I just felt like I was having a heart attack, or walking down the street, or I was walking my dog, or I was sitting on the couch. Usually ten, tends to have that kind of uh, nature to it. And what I like to say, uh, my, my favorite definition of panic disorder, which takes a little bit to unpack, is that panic is really the catastrophic misinterpretation of benign physical events. Let me just say that again. So the catastrophic catastrophe, right? Misinterpretation of benign, not harmful, physical events. And the reason why I like that definition is because what we find in panic disorder is that even though it's so intense and, and so crippling in the moment, if we really look at what's happening in the body, it's not dangerous. But try telling that to somebody that has a panic disorder. <laughs> it feels very intense and we have to take that very seriously. But eventually the treatment, I'm almost giving the end game, is to, through a process of experiences and eliciting some of the panic in the room, we begin to learn that they're not dangerous, that those symptoms of heart beating fast, stay with me on this, or sweating, or feeling a little dizzy, are the exact same symptoms that you would have if you were on the treadmill. It's just that it's happening while I'm lying on the couch. Not supposed to happen, so there must be something wrong with me. Well, the good news is, that besides having panic disorder, there's not <laughs> usually something wrong with you. And of course, if you're having any of those symptoms, you should always first get checked with a doc to rule out any real physical issues. But the work toward addressing panic is just that. I treated a woman, we'll call her Cindy, I've seen for many years, and she was somebody who developed both a specific phobia for flying, and in addition to that, panic attacks while flying when she had to fly. And it was pretty important that she flew. She has a, a big position in, a, in sort of a civic group that needed to, she needed to fly across the country and wanted to be a part of that. And um, 
what we did was really begin to just look at the thoughts and the physical symptoms associated with the experience of panic and substituted some of those thoughts and used distraction techniques and relaxation techniques, some of which I'll teach you here tonight, hopefully. Uh, and within about eight or nine sessions, she was back on the plane and booking her next trips. So panic disorder is one of those things that's very treatable and with somebody with specialty in treating panic disorder can really be almost eradicated in seven or eight sessions, which is very nice. Obsessive compulsive disorder, on the other hand, about 1% of our population, is a little trickier, tends to hold on a little bit more, tends to arise out of early childhood issues for a sense of control and making order out of a chaotic life. Um, we, we throw around the words OCD a lot in our vernacular. Sometimes a little bit seems to be associated with functioning well. They say, uh, when I was in grad school, oh, if you're, if you're a graduate student, if you don't have a little OCD, you're not gonna make it through. But what we're talking about is the disorder, which can be also very debilitating. Obsessions, those are those thoughts that you cannot get out of your head. That's where obsessions lie. Compulsions are the behaviors that you can't stop doing. Tapping, counting, um, checking, plugs at home. Now, again, we're gonna talk a little bit about all of these things lie on a continuum of minimal to mild to moderate to severe. So uh, you, you mustn't feel upset or worried if you do a little bit of the checking on the plugs and, and so forth. It's when it's disrupting functioning that it can be really, you know, really difficult. Social anxiety has a big percentage. A lot of our American cohort here have uh, difficulty in social settings, more than you imagine. So for somebody who doesn't really deal with that issue, we may have a tough time understanding that people just being in a room with other people here uh, can feel a lot of discomfort and a lot of difficulty with the anticipation of being called on or, or having to speak um, even, even to a small group, never mind a group like this. They say public speaking is actually um, a worse fear than death <laughs> they did, than they do surveys. So I've gotten past that, I guess, at least. But um, so just to ease everybody's mind tonight, if you are dealing with any social anxiety or even anxiety about being here, I, I, I'm not gonna put you in uh, difficult situations by any means. If anything, hopefully we'll get some relaxation in today. And we'll just have a little bit of a time where we just talk to our neighbors and you're in completely in charge of if you wanna talk or how much you wanna talk. It'll just be about sharing about the presentation, anything that you're connecting to, and so forth. Anxiety by, uh, caused by a general medical condition is worth noting. A lot of anxiety that we're feeling in our bodies and minds can um, come from medical issues. Some of the big ones are hyperthyroidism, so an overactive thyroid can give you anxiety symptoms and also some cardiac uh, issues like around arrhythmias and those sorts of things can create the feeling of anxiety, so parsing that out can sometimes be really helpful. Specific phobias we mentioned, those are just intense fears about a particular thing, flying, snakes, most of us have snake phobias, driving over bridges as an example, and then post-traumatic stress disorder, getting a lot of play in our media, in our news reports, 
Um, it used to be thought that PTSD uh, was, was solely for warriors and, and uh, soldiers from war. Then it extended, we found, wow, we're finding the same symptoms in people who are survivors of uh, sexual or domestic abuse. Now we're looking a little deeper. I had the pleasure of studying with Bessel van der Kolk, who is a psychiatrist out of Harvard for the last 50 years, has dedicated his life to just studying trauma specifically, and he's finding, I hate to tell us folks, but that trauma in the brain can look the same as somebody who had, you know, god-awful experiences in war, even with a prolonged uh, level of neglect in the home, or a perceived or real abandonment in the home, or some difficulties in childhood like divorce and those kinds of things. So we have to look a little bit broader into the realm of trauma and realize that there's something called developmental trauma, which is how trauma in the brain occurs as we develop. And if you think about it, it makes a little bit of sense because the brains that we have now that are so well-developed and can kind of do a little navel-gazing and say, oh, look at me, here's how I'm acting and here's how I'm being, if you take that same brain and put it, you know, for a child who's two and three, where it's just developing, everything in their world is being soaked in. Maybe not in fancy explanations like we're having now, but in sensations and in noises and in a scowl on mom's face or dad's face, right? Those kinds of things. So it's just worth thinking about um, at such a sensitive time in our life, what's happening in the brain of the child and how do they deal with, how do they make sense of the world that they're given? Because we, we only live how we, we only learn about life how we are trained to live. And that's usually with our primary caregivers in the, at least the first five or six years. Okay. Just pause for a second. I know that's a lot. A lot of info. Okay, we did that. Whoops. Okay, so I just put up a contrast there between depression and anxiety so you could take a look at which pieces overlap and which ones are different. And I just picked general, generalized anxiety disorder as one of the anxiety disorders. If you ask people to name two common mental health problems, chances are they'll think of anxiety and depression. And despite the fact that they're commonly referenced in conversation, people still struggle sometimes to determine the difference. Now, roughly 50% of people diagnosed with depression will also be diagnosed with an anxiety disorder. However, it's important to get an accurate diagnosis in order to treat the co correct condition. Many people with depression may experience what's known as anxious distress in addition to low mood. And people with anxious distress often feel tense, restless, have trouble concentrating because they worry so much, and they're deeply afraid that something bad's going to happen or that they might lose control of themselves. 
Whereas with people with just a straight depression without the anxiety, they might not have that anxious distress because there's more of a hopelessness that takes over. So they don't anticipate that bad things are going to happen. They just feel like it's going to stay the same, the hopelessness. Okay. So we've been through this. Now we've mentioned suicidal thoughts and behaviors with depression, and I just thought it was worth mentioning that suicide is one of the leading causes of death in the United States, according to the National Institutes of Health and the CDC. And I know it touches our communities. It's touched this community. It's touched communities around us. We're seeing it in schools. Just in my town, uh, recently I moved to Beacon, New York, about two and a half years ago, which is probably why you don't see me in church anymore, if you did at one point. Um, had a boy take his life who was in the 10th grade, you know, uh, just recently. So it's, it's, it's here, and, it, and we have to talk about it. It's part of depression. Tenth leading cause of death overall in the United States, 47,000 people. And second leading cause of death among individuals between 10 and 34. And twice as many suicides as there were homicides in 2017. It's pretty striking. Luckily, depression is extremely treatable. With the right diagnosis and the right path to treatment, you can almost, almost hang your hat on improvement. But it has to be identified, it has to be spoken about, and we have to have the courage, both from the perspective of feeling depressed, to reach out, but also the courage on the other end to see that in other people and to extend a hand. And this gets into the stigmatization of mental illness, I think, both with anxiety or, or any mental illness, is sometimes we do have that internal bias. I mean, even therapists can be subject to this, believe it or not. We have to really dig deep, which is why I believe we should be doing our own work on ourselves to um, debunk the myths that we have about people that are struggling with certain disorders. So I'd like you to think about the stigmatization of mental illness. What kinds of maybe assumptions you have or you've seen out there in the media? What kind of biases you might have about certain disorders? You might feel like for instance, I'm just off the top of my head, well, if it's very severe, like schizophrenia or, or PTSD, then maybe, yeah, I can see there being a need for counseling. But if it's this, this anxiety and stress stuff, like, come on, you know, just pull yourself up by your bootstraps. Just sort of keep on, keep on going. You know, that's what I do, right? We have, we have these tendencies. So what I would put forth to the congregation tonight is to just begin to be able to identify what those biases are in yourself or maybe in others. And let's have a conversation about it. Um, we'll have a little opportunity to talk about that a little later. But even after today, and I know Pastor Steve will be picking up on this in, in weeks to come, so that we can start to learn more about what mental illness is and begin to have healthy conversations around it. All right.
Where does anxiety land? Put up four here for us to think about, four buckets. Body, we've mentioned some of these, heart palpitations, sweating, general unease in our gut. The gut is very important, by the way, while I'm on it. There's a gut-brain connection. If you're ever interested, if you're a neuroscience nerd like I am, I recommend you reading about the gut-brain connection. And again, in our vernacular, right, from years past, we say, oh, I just have a gut feeling about this, or I just can't stomach this situation. So you can really go to the gut to really know sometimes what's happening with your health, <laughs> with your mental health. Um, muscle tension, blurry vision, vertigo, dizziness. Uh, physical tics, something in the eyes or in the head sometimes, shaking, insomnia. In the mind, we see worried thoughts, obsessive thoughts, catastrophizing, which we'll unpack later. Catastrophizing is taking a thought and magnifying it, predicting with it, acting as if it's true, and it might not be. We're going to talk about decatastrophizing. Overfocus on future outcomes can happen in the mind. Negative attributions. So you take a situation and you're immediately assessing it as negative, attributing it as negative. Negative thinking goes with that. Night terrors and bad dreams. So that's in the mind. Behavioral, uh, using drugs or alcohol. Avoidance is a behavior of people or places. Avoiding feelings, particularly anger or sadness. Those are the two favorites to avoid. <laughs> withdrawal or isolation, withdrawal from others. Over-controlling behaviors or situations. Blaming others or blaming oneself. So that, that's a striking balance that we have to take when we're dealing with ourselves. Anxiety and overcoming mental illness. Too much externalizing. It's that person, it's that place, it's my work, it's my boss, it's out there doesn't seem to work so well, but over-internalizing, oh, it's me, I'm just a failure, I can't do anything right, it's never going to get better, that's not quite right either. So a healthy balance between seeing what can I own in this and what does come from the outside. A great example is the past. You heard Pastor Steve talk about it today. The past happened. It affects us. No doubt about that. Some people know it, some people don't. Some people minimize it. Some people realize it's a, it's a thing. But do we stay in the past? Do we just hang out there the whole time? Have a pity party? Of course not. We have to acknowledge it so that we can move forward and see now I'm not responsible to what happened to me in my past, but I am responsible now as an adult to do something about it, you know, to talk about it, to get counseling, to get help. Okay. And then spiritual. The shoulds and the shouldn'ts. I should be doing more, I should be doing this, I shouldn't be doing that. Excessive guilt, doubts about faith, doubts about oneself in relationship with God. I like this phrase, not good enoughness. If you're like me, that goes on a lot in your mind. Not worthy of prayer or communion with God and comparing yourself with others. 
Though these symptoms can be managed, the problem arises not so much from the symptoms themselves, although they are challenging, but I think the problem arise, arises with the severity of anxiety and depression when we believe we're all, we are alone with our issues and then there's nowhere to turn with it. Then hopelessness or resignation can set in. So when we look at where these anxiety lands in these buckets, eventually we begin to have the experience of the whole person, which we've been talking about today. All of these make up who we are as a, as a whole person. Okay. Of course, many of us know this passage from Philippians. Pastor Steve referenced it today. This gives us a command and directive about anxiety. And we love this verse, right? I think mostly because it opens with a very direct thing that we can do that actually plugs us into a path toward combating anxiety. Rejoice in the Lord always. It's awesome. We have to do that. And that is uh, something that we can all practice as Christians. And we think to do this, and we're able to do this, and we begin to combat our depression and anxiety. Then it says, be anxious for nothing, and gives us another directive. It drives us toward the path of healing through prayer, petition, and reminds us that we have a God who's listening to us, cares about us, and intends to heal and guard our hearts. But of course, even with this wonderful passage and these directives that we know we can rely on as Christians, we also can't be in denial or try to hide that there are times, moments, hours or days that we feel anxious. And see, in that moment, when we observe and notice we're already anxious, it doesn't do any good to hide it or downplay it or to use this verse somehow as to say, well, be anxious for nothing, so I can't be anxious. That's not happening, right? We have to, we have to know what's happening. We have to embrace that. And whatever's happening in that present moment, already is, if it exists. So at that moment, then yes, we can turn to the Bible and follow God's plan to address it. But too many times we may go into like a mini denial when we have problems or anxiety or depression, maybe believe that if we minimize it or dismiss it, that it won't be a problem. Not so. And we do this to ourselves, we do this to others too, as we mentioned. We might invalidate the anxiety or depression or see it just as wallowing. The suffering from the past can't be undone because it's already been experienced. The pain in the present is also being experienced. So that can't be denied. But the pain and suffering of the future, that might be able to be avoided or attenuated. So I'd like us to think about, about that too as a way to move out of denial and into embracing what we experience. Okay. This is the range. Minimal, mild, moderate, severe. We've talked a little bit about this already. Minimal is infrequent and short-lived anxiety. 
no impairment in daily activities, very transient and mild in intensity. For example, I was worried about the upcoming test and felt butterflies in my stomach. Mild is also infrequent, but maybe slightly higher in intensity and duration. Shows some sign of disruption in functioning. You might notice it in the body or in the mind in the form of physical sensations or negative thoughts. For example, I feel nervous about having to face some conflict at work that I know is ongoing. I feel some tightness in my chest, let's say, two to three days per week, and sometimes I can't sleep at night, but no more than three to four times a month as an example of, of uh, mild. Moderate levels of anxiety are characterized by a certain chronicity and pervasiveness. This level is resistant to common ways to simply calm down, like rest or getting your mind off something through activity. It's resistant to that. Symptoms may also impair functioning like sleep, self-esteem, getting tasks done, or functioning well in relationships. When I, whenever I even think of being in social situations, for example, I'll start to sweat. I tell myself I'm gonna say something stupid. I actively avoid these situations at all costs. Or, another example, I have a panic attack about one to two times per month, and they seem to come out of the blue. Those examples are moderate anxiety. Then there can be severe anxiety as well. This uh, will gravely impair a person's functioning can't walk on the street without having intense uh, OCD symptoms, as an example. Cannot leave the house, cannot work. I had a, a patient for probably one of my first patients, still seeing this person, we'll call her Carla. And for years and years and years, there was anxiety and depression. Very resistant to change, uh, difficulty at work and at home, but, but was holding down a job. Uh, things got very, very severe when she had to leave work because she just couldn't get out of the house and would fear intensely um, going outside because when she was outside, the world bombarded her with things to obsess and compulse about. It could be the saving of a wounded animal like a bird or a cat, or it could be some difficulty on the street but for a long, long time, there was such embarrassment and humiliation about the OCD that we really didn't get that to that in the therapy for many, many years. So sometimes it can take a long time to even be able to share what the difficulty is. And there was a lot of depression and anxiety on the top of the obsessive compulsive disorder. But now that we've been actually just talking about the OCD and having it in the room, there's been incredible breakthroughs, much more activity, getting out of the house more often. So you can see that link, that a big piece of it is to just be able to speak about it, be able to admit it to yourself and others. Okay, just some examples, some anecdotes for you to see if you can relate to these in one way or another. So the past year, severity of any anxiety disorder, this is a little dated, 2001 to 2003 from the National Comorbidity Survey. This is the general breakdown of mild, moderate, and serious anxiety. By the way, I didn't open with who I am and, and my background, I've been throwing out little anecdotes and such, because I assume 
a lot of folks came to the services, but just in case you didn't get to the services today and you're just coming this evening, you know, my name is Dan Guerra and I'm a clinical psychologist. I have a practice in Midtown where I work with folks that have anxiety disorders, depression, stress management concerns, and also chronic pain, uh, which I got into when I worked at NYU Medical Center, um, working with stroke, spinal cord injury, um, and other health-related issues. Oftentimes, when a person's living with a medical condition for a long time, they start to feel very anxious and depressed. It kind of goes hand in hand. Or if you live with a mental illness for quite a while, like anxiety or depression, severe anxiety or depression, your body can break down. So it works in both directions. And that's how I got into the chronic uh, pain piece. So I've been in practice for about uh, 20 years, just so you know why I'm speaking about this and, and how it's come to be. So more stats on anxiety for you here. Most common mental illness, affecting about 40 million adults. Also anxiety, very treatable. This is what gets me excited and passionate about doing what I do is because I've learned both in my own life and working with patients is that it really takes very little if you can get folks to sign on to have some positive impact on anxiety. It responds to certain practices, which is exciting. I like things that work. <laughs> People uh, with anxiety disorder are three to five times more likely to go to the doctor, often for physiological complaints. Pastor Steve touched on that today. And a variety of risk factors, including genetics, brain chemistry, personality, and life events. Okay, now we move into stress. You'll see some overlap here, but I think it's worth talking about stress on its own because we can maybe collapse the two. And I think it was Asha who said today that not all stress is bad, and I agree, we'll get to that. She mentioned eustress. So stress can also be physical, behavioral, emotional, cognitive. And I won't go through all of those again, but you can extrapolate from the anxiety part. And that makes up stress. We all experience stress. And we all experience both the positive and negative aspects of stress. But one thing worth noting is that stress can tend to be external deadlines work demands, home demands, weather, traffic, an aging body, things that tend to come from the outside and impact us from the outside in. But it also can be internal, which is what we say to ourselves about weather or traffic or how we be, grammatically incorrect on purpose, right? <laughs> how we be in the world. That is an internal process and we have choice over that. And so, as the story goes, we have greater control over our internal sources of stress. And that's exciting, because if we can get to the parts that we have, we can put our finger on the, on the barometer, so to speak, then we can make improvements. We can't change the weather. We can't really change the traffic patterns. But we can change what we do when we're in traffic what we say to ourselves, or how we breathe. 
That's a little foreshadowing for later, the breathing part. And not all stress is bad. So I wish I had the graph up here if, for those who are visual folks. If you can imagine an upside-down U, an upside-down U. And on the vertical axis is performance. And on the horizontal axis is arousal or stress or anxiety, if you will, upside-down U. So with low arousal or low stress or anxiety, performance is very low. I don't care about this test. I don't care about this match. Who cares if we win or lose? Performance is going to be low. But on the other end, high anxiety, oh my god, if I don't pass this test, it's going to be over for me. Or so much flooded anxiety that you can't perform in sports, just using those as an example. Also low performance. But a medium amount of stress, right, having that sort of focus, you're a little jittery before a match or before a test, you know, you're, you're kind of going, flipping through your mind, like, what's happening, do I remember everything? That's really good. That's correlated with high performance. And the good news is you can train that brainwave state. It's called SMR, sensory motor rhythm, and also a little bit of beta. SMR, for those who are cat lovers out there, you'll really find interesting, is that they did a study on cats. Cats spend a lot of time in SMR. You can just watch it, right? The cat's gonna, you know, it's moving around, it's doing its thing, and then all of a sudden, it's looking at something, right? And then it's crouching. Could be like, seems like a half hour, right? And then, pow, and it just pounces on it. It gets it. It achieves its goal or jumps or, you know, that's SMR. We have that. They trained the Olympic divers in SMR. Why? Because they're climbing up the ladder. They're walking to the top. They get to the edge of the board. Right? Similar. Free throw in the basketball. SMR. So a lot of the practices that we do, and believe it or not, even psychotherapy, starts to get us into this brainwave state so we can deal with these situations. Here's the nerdy stuff. Sorry. You're all like, wow, I thought he was done with the nerdy stuff. We're just starting. But what's happening with stress in the nervous system? So we have parasympathetic and sympathetic. Just real briefly, this looks like a gobbledygook slide, but just, to, just so you know what's happening inside, when there's anxiety and a lot of stress. The sympathetic nervous system kicks in. This is not a bad thing, it's adaptive. Pupils will dilate. Salivation will be inhibited, it slows down. I'll tell you why in a sec. The bronchi relax to let more oxygen in. Heartbeat accelerates. Stimulation of glucose, which is energy, gets translated as energy in the liver, digestion is inhibited, right? Blood comes to the larger muscles. This is so that we can fight or flight. You've heard of this, 10th grade biology. Because when there's a tiger that walks into the base camp, when we were living in harsher times, who cares about digestion? We gotta either fight this tiger or run in the other direction, right? Parasympathetic is the opposite, it's the rest and digest. But before we go there, the problem that we're having right now is that we are living in a world 
of sympathetic over-responding all day long. So even when there's no tiger, so to speak, and by the way, substitute tiger for, you know, conflict at home or an abusive partner or a very demanding boss or the voice the voices in our head, I don't mean that in a psychotic way, but more like what we're telling ourselves, right? Those are those, those tigers. But now it's constant checking of the phones, or before there were smartphones, it was picking up the phone on the first ring. They did a study where they trained office managers to, instead of picking up the phone on the first ring, hello, right in the middle of their day, they just taught them that once the phone rings, use that as a signal to do three cleansing breaths that took about 15 seconds. What they found is that the people on the other line that used to call them regularly, they didn't even recognize their voices. <laughs> and they reported greater job satisfaction at work just by doing that. So we can move ourselves out of sympathetic nervous system over-responding to regular balance between sympathetic and parasympathetic. We need the sympathetic branch. Believe me, if, God forbid, somebody walked outside in the street and a car came zooming by and, and you notice and you jump back, that's sympathetic nervous system. If I was to throw a ball at somebody re really quick at, their, at your face and you went to catch it, that's sympathetic nervous system. But how can we increase the time where we say, the tiger's been taken care of. <sighs> now we can eat, now we can fellowship, now we can soak up those non-doing moments. We're not doing that. It's becoming more and more squeezed. If you're like me, up until recently, I'm trying to practice what I preach, but if you're like me, it's go, 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 go sleep. That I'm actually doing things as I'm resting, as I'm leaning to get back onto the pillow, working, and the phone's right there. And I'm trying, I'm trying to create space before I sleep. Preparing for sleep is very important. Most of the world does it, except Americans. That's a true statement. I've been around the world, and it's amazing. People shut the lights, they, they create space. If you're doing that already, bravo, incredible. So these are like the little things that we can do, right, to make an impact over time. Maybe you know others that you're already doing. I'd love to hear about it. Okay. Here's your brain on a slide. So, as humans, we have this frontal cortex. It's wonderful. It allows us to think about thinking. It allows us to all reflect on our lives right now and say, oh, do I do that? Is that me? Is that... It's a wonderful thing. But it ain't the whole picture. We also have a limbic brain. It's first developed when we're, a, when we're little babies, little child. It's called the reptilian brain. And anyone who's been around newborns, it's not hard to make the jump. <laughs> you know, we're very, very basic in our first stages of life, right? The limbic brain is the emotional brain where our emotions are seated. It's that fight, flight, and freeze response. We didn't talk about freeze, we'll do that in a sec. And it's all about safety. There's not even a sense of I in the limbic brain, in the early brain. The baby is just looking up at whoever's looking down on them and saying, that's me. They don't even know about the self. So anything that's coming out at them 
is being absorbed. But we still have this limbic brain. That's where emotions lie. That's the difference between somebody who has a degree of emotional intelligence when they can connect the limbic brain to the prefrontal cortex to say, oh, I'm feeling this way, versus somebody who cuts off, no, that was then, I don't have those feelings, I'm not looking at that, where they think they're just a thinking person, not happening. All the studies show that mostly you can, you can lay out a 100-page document on the logic of your decision-making, but at the end of the day, and this, I hate to say it, includes everything, voting, everything. It's really about emotions. There are emotions driving these things. So it's just good to think about that and to know that and to, and to let them into the picture. And so prefrontal cortex, we have the seats of morality and mora moral decision-making, intuition, uh, tuning in our communication, emotional regulation. It's the, it's the prefrontal cortex that says, oh, this guy just cut me off, or this gal just cut me off. What do I do? I'm gonna take a breath and ease off the gas. It's the limbic brain that tends to fly up hand gestures and stuff like that, or those immediate responses, right? So next time that happens, you can blame your limbic brain. But you try to communicate with it if you can. Okay. We have a few more things to do, and then we're going to get you talking and, and, and moving and doing. I, I think this is an incredible, incredible study. What a uh, monumental undertaking. The ACE studies in 95 to 97, Adverse Childhood Experiences. So for those who don't know, it's a collaboration between the Centers for Disease Control and this guy named Vincent Folletti. He was an internist and chief of Kaiser Permanente's Department of Preventative Medicine in San Diego, and Robert Anda, another MD and investigators. More than 50,000 Kaiser patients participated in comprehensive evaluation addressing carefully defined categories of adverse childhood experiences. The ACEs included the above abuses that you see here and neglect, but also included family dysfunction, having parents who were divorced, mentally ill, addicted, or in prison. A subgroup of this group provided information about childhood events and their responses were compared to medical records that Kaiser kept on all patients. Any of the following abuses to a child under the age of 18 by a parent, caregiver, or another person in a custodial role, such as clergy or a, or a coach or a teacher, that results in harm, potential for harm, or threat of harm to a child. That's an interesting distinction. So not just folks who are harmed, but even the threat of harm can register as an adverse childhood experience. And you could see why this is important. I won't run through what physical, sexual, and emotional abuse are. I think we probably have a good working understanding of that. Uh, neglect is the failure to meet a child's basic physical or emotional needs. These include housing, food, clothing, education, and access to medical care. Uh, I'd be interested to see an ACE study now to see how many children are adversely affected from information overload. True. Availability and access and the content of reporting, including domestic and overseas terrorism, and the catastrophic nature of these reports, and just the bombastic kind of energy with which news is reported. Whatever beliefs your beliefs are, anything like that, 
aside, just the, the intensity of it is enough to affect the nervous system. So generally, the results of this study are that we see a, a graded dose-response relationship between adverse childhood events and negative health and well-being outcomes. In other words, as the number of ACEs increase, so does the risk for negative outcomes. This is what we mean by developmental trauma. This is what we're learning. And I like this, uh, this chart here. Let's see, would my pointer work? Nope, not having luck today. So we see on the bottom, generational embodiment and historical trauma. As you see on the, on the right there, that begins at conception. You were born into a whole family history of stuff that happened. Right? And there's trauma in there. That gets passed through our genes. Then we have social conditions and the local context. What's happening in your life in that year at that time and place in your family's life. And then put on top of that adverse childhood experiences. Then we start to see disrupted neurodevelopment back to the baby brain into the adult brain. Social, emotional, and cognitive impairment. I'm giving a lot of talks now at schools on social-emotional learning and the trauma that teachers and parents are seeing in schools, both as a result of, in some cases, adverse childhood experiences, but in other cases, just the world that we're living in right now. School shootings, lockdown drills. I mean, what is it like for a second grader to have a lockdown drill and then go right back to your history lesson? No debriefing, no people in suits walking down the halls. I certainly didn't have to deal with that. Maybe it relates to uh, World War II when there was, you know, you, there, I've, I've heard from folks you had to go under desks and things like that for fear of, of bombings, but it, it affects us. So disrupted neurodevelopment, social, emotional, and cognitive impairment, adoption of health risk behavior, perhaps, that's the behavior pieces, drugs, alcohol, overeating, disease, disability, and social problems and sadly can, can lead to early death. But there's good news is that we start to identify this early in the neurodevelopment and start intervening and we can change the way things roll out. We can even have an impact on multi-generational trauma. If you're dealing with your own trauma, you're less likely to pass that on to future generations. Praise God, that's amazing. In the middle of the presentation, when in doubt, throw up a picture of a baby. So just back to this, just to get our minds centered on where we start, right? It's all about establishing safety. How are we safe in the world? So take the baby who seemingly just days ago was in complete warmth and comfort of the mother's womb, doesn't have to even think, just sits there in bliss, doesn't have to open its mouth to, to feed, to breathe, any of that. First trauma, birth. <laughs> Whoa, there's a separation. What, what just happened? Right? And now, as I said, you know, people looking over the baby, oh, look at the beautiful baby, you know. And the baby says, that's me. I exist. 
Now add a depressed mom or an alcoholic dad or disruption in that treatment and what's being registered in terms of safety. These are the seeds of difficulty and trauma. And the good news is we can, our brains can tolerate some disruption. So the mother leaves to use the bathroom or to warm the milk and the baby goes, trauma, but the mom comes back. We can deal with that, we can integrate that. It's just these extended and severe disruptions that we have to consider. Okay, so we mentioned fight or flight. People with trauma tend to lean toward version one often, have to keep moving in constant fight or flight in order to feel safe in the world. But we didn't mention freeze, that with very pervasive ongoing trauma, there is a perpetual shutdown. And this is, has been uh, told and heard as, as really like a living hell, trapped in one's own body where you can't move. And that's why when we're thinking about people who have been subject to sexual abuse or rape or terrible events like that, we really have to get off of the mindset of saying, well, you know, why didn't you say anything? Or why didn't you do anything? And things like that, because when we're thinking like that, we really don't understand how the nervous system works. The nervous system shuts down for safety. You can even see this in the animal kingdom. Mice, back to cats. My, I, I, there's a great picture of a, of a mouse just like limp in a cat's mouth, but it's alive. It just shuts down so it can reserve its energy and, and uh, perpetuate a possible survival. We have the same, similar kinds of brain. So going back to emotional abuse, it just referring to behaviors that harm a child's self-worth or emotional well-being. And examples include name-calling, shaming, rejection, withholding love, and threatening. Those are all possible examples of emotional abuse. And you know, we've, we've heard in certain circles that uh, people growing up in Christian homes can sometimes experience uh, emotional abuse, uh, maybe unintended, but because of maybe uh, some very rigid beliefs or the ways that uh, a certain culture within Christianity may feel that emotions should be placed, that we don't talk about feelings of sadness or anger. Um, this isn't unique to, to Christians necessarily, but through the course of the day today, we've heard some people having to deal with that. So that's one area where it could land, just these ideas of um, not being able to feel necessarily heard or understood or shamed for having certain mental or emotional experiences. However that comes up, that can be classified as emotional abuse. And we're gonna have some you know, times for questions around these, uh, these issues as well. So getting back to where we were, how can we begin to address anxiety? Well, first of all, part of it is doing what we're doing right now, is educating ourselves about what it is, learning about it, destigmatizing it, uh, certainly ruling out a medical condition. You wouldn't want to be swimming upstream against anxiety when you really need to control the endocrine system, uh, like your thyroid, for an example. Uh, 
Um, physical activity, and I said, I say there versus exercise. Exercise certainly is physical activity, but I think that the body keeps the score when it comes to anxiety. An anxious mind cannot live in a relaxed body. So if you are a person who is just operating from the neck up, maybe you can relate to a time in your life when you, when you did that, or maybe that's you, then you're missing a whole area that can be utilized to your benefit to address anxiety. And moving the body can help. It can be something as simple as a walk in nature, even a short walk, or resetting the clock, going from the work setting to a walk around the block. And then, of course, exercise is just awesome for changing the neurochemistry of our brain and helps with depression and anxiety. Changing the way we eat, sometimes that means making healthier choices. There are certain foods that absolutely will increase a person's tendency to feel anxious or stressed, things like processed foods, sugars, carbohydrates, if it's too much, but also the way we eat. I mentioned personally one of my anxiety signs isn't that I'm moving to junk food or something like that, it's the speed with which I eat. I know when I'm choking down food, there's something on my mind, or there's something that I'm not addressing, or um, I'm a little bit too wound up or stressed, and I consciously try to place in some breaths. Uh, changing the way we think is huge. We need to do that. Perspective taking, prayer, pastoral counseling, and worship is, is very, very central. Don't need to tell this group that. And certainly psychotherapy and mental health counseling. For those of you who may feel like psychotherapy is for crazy people, I can tell you it's not so. That uh, psychotherapy is a very, very time-tested, great uh, process to go through. It's not about being so weak that you need to go to somebody to tell you what to do or anything like that. Good therapists do not give advice. You know, it's, unless it's take your hand off the hot stove, we might give that kind of advice. But generally, it's an exploration about self-learning. And we have a, a, an advantage and a perspective. And you have an advantage of using the therapist as somebody who is not invested necessarily in one way or another of directing you here or there, like parents and good friends are. They have a clinical perspective. And you can say anything in the therapy room. That's something that I tell folks as soon as they come in, usually. And I even say, you can say everything in here, even the things that you say, I would never say that. And that can be very good. Where, where in the world do we have to go with those kinds of things, except with God, which is amazing, but on this earth, hardly anywhere. Okay, consideration of psychotropic medications. Sometimes medicines are good. I'm not uh, somebody who's a big pill pusher as the first uh, place to go, but in, in some cases, I was talking with Pastor Steve today that withholding medication with certain types of depression and anxiety would be unethical. It works, maybe for a short time, or maybe in conjunction with psychotherapy. Oftentimes, uh, an antidepressant, for instance, will gear the body and mind toward responding to the therapy better. And Let's get rid of the notion, by the way, I know it's tempting to say, oh, that person has a chemical depression versus this person who has a situational. 
in my opinion, people may disagree, doesn't exist. It's always both. Always. Because when you have depression, you have depleted serotonin. I don't care if it happened because of the loss of somebody that you were close to or if it happened because you were just born that way. So it's always biopsychosocial chemical. So there's the and, and what else do we have? Of course, scripture. Isaiah 41, 9 through 10. I took you from the ends of the earth, farthest, from its farthest corners I called you. I said, you are my servant. I have chosen you, have not rejected you. So do not fear, for I am with you. Do not be dismayed, for I am your God. I will strengthen you and help you. I will uphold you with my righteous right hand. Certainly not the least, our scripture and our God. We turn to our Lord, our great healer and great comforter and great counselor in times of need. So while we're doing that, we need to orient toward a body-mind-brain learning. When we begin to look at ourselves and our life experience as made up of a system and not a group of compartmentalized parts where the mind and body and spirit are separate, then we begin to find very effective ways to address anxiety. As humans, we're sometimes built to look for easy answers and simple solutions, but the reality is that we're fairly complicated people who have multiple influences throughout our life with multiple impacts on different levels of our life, and we need to respond to this in a holistic way to be effective. Now, once you mention holistic, sometimes in Christian circles, there might be a feeling of unease or cringe because it might conjure up notions of, of maybe new age kinds of philosophy or practices that might feel at odds with our beliefs. But let me be clear about what I mean by holistic. So when I say holistic, I just mean addressing the very truth that we're made up of systems in the body, not discrete parts that don't talk to one another. Back to that gut-brain connection, right? Uh, what else? Our bodies, wow, so informative. I've never met a patient in my private practice who had repressed feelings of, let's say, anger or sadness or disappointment unexpressed for years where it did not show up in some kind of form of bodily uh, disorder or dysfunction. Often, rheumatoid arthritis is a clear indication of many, many years of repressed anger. Now, if you have that or you know somebody um, that does and it, that doesn't seem to resonate, there's other ways that one can get that, but it often, you can find something there, some kind of connection. Chronic pain, stomach disorders, migraines, heart and lung issues. Now, does this mean that every physical problem we encounter is caused by the mind or our feelings? Absolutely not. But the point is that at the very least, one affects the other. So with that said, to effectively address our emotional problems and our anxiety, we need to look toward ourselves as a whole system and to develop an awareness and application of body, mind, brain learning. And we're gonna move into that a little bit. And this is why things like, dare I say, yoga and tai chi and relaxation strategies and guided imagery and breathing practices and massage, it's why it works. Now you can take yoga to a, a realm or in a direction that 
might come at odds with a lot of our beliefs, and that's up to the individual to parse out and to know who your God is. But to certainly move the body in coordination with your breath, this is like just good science and should be practiced. I taught it for a long time, so I, I believe in it. I think it's great. Aromatherapy, certain types of meditation, awesome. So here's a measurable takeaway for self-regulation. If you can remember nothing else tonight but this, I think it might help. The power of the pause. We all have a pause button, just like on our recorders or our DVRs or whatever you want to say. I'm, I'm dating myself. I never even used a DVR, actually, but I know they existed at some point. So this pause is just a choice, is to first notice something's happening. Too much tension in my shoulders. I'm eating too fast. I'm barking at my son or daughter or spouse. I feel that palpitation in, in my chest. I'm starting to wring my hands. First notice, and then press the pause. It might not be easy, but you can develop it. And just stop. And stopping doesn't have to be an hour or three hours. It could just be a moment. And what do we do in that pause? Well, the answer to that is literally right under your nose. We breathe. But most people don't know how to breathe. I know that sounds wacky because we're all alive and we're breathing. But we're, most of us are doing it non-efficiently. And it usually means a lot of breath up in the chest with short inhales and very, very short exhales. We have an opportunity to change the way we breathe and get our brains online with the parasympathetic nervous system. And how wonderful that God provided such an accessible and fairly simple way for that to happen. So we're gonna do that right now. So put all your things, your notes and such down. This is an experience. And uncross your legs and put both feet flat on the floor. And the first practice we're gonna do is called diaphragmatic breathing. Don't worry at all if you seem to not be doing it well. Perfection is the enemy of the good in this case. If you're trying it out and you're just practicing, then you're already succeeding. But just see if you can follow along with me and let go of doing it right and just try to organically let it happen. So I'd like you, everyone just to become aware of their body. And by that, you may want to turn your attention away from me and turn it inward a little bit. That may mean closing your eyes or it might just mean leaving your eyes open, but, but taking a stance with your sight of just drinking in, if I can say it that way, your vision, not seeking out, not looking at me necessarily, but like just allowing your eyes to be open and passive. And notice your body. Notice your toes all the way up to your head. And notice that you're breathing. You have an inhale and an exhale. An inhale and an exhale. Very good. Now place your right hand on your navel as you continue 
this level of awareness, just an inward focus. Just your right hand on your navel. And if you can, I'd like you to inhale. And as you inhale, I'd like you to expand the belly out. So if you want a visual, I'll do my best here to inhale. And the belly protrudes out. And as you exhale, the belly comes in. So inhaling, and the belly pushes out. And exhaling, and the belly pushes in, or comes back toward the center. Now after a few rounds, if this is seeming difficult, just let that concept go, and just go with the inhale and the exhale, feeling it in your body with your hand. Following along with me, inhaling and exhaling. Inhaling and exhaling. And now on your own, placing your full attention in the belly not trying to achieve anything, not trying to get any place, just being you and your breath. If you've lost focus, gently return. Stay with it. Now you may know the mind starts to creep in and starts to make judgments and starts to talk, starts to get distracted. I don't want to do this anymore. What is the, if, it, if it's happening, just gently let that go. Bring yourself back to the practice without commenting on it. Just noticing. Very good. On the next exhale, allow this practice to finish and allow your eyes to open so I know you're finished. Very good. Now what I should have asked you to do is to note how your body and mind was feeling before and how you might be feeling now, but uh, just a quick show of hands. Who noticed, never mind if it was positive or negative, but just a difference in the body or the mind by just doing that short practice. Wow, whoa, okay. And out of those folks, how many folks felt a little bit more relaxed? Wow, that's a lot for the first time. That's, that's impressive. And how many folks felt a little bit more anxious? Who's gonna admit that? Okay, great. Good, good. No, I like to hear that because this is not a guarantee that everything's gonna be hunky-dory. When you're learning something new, it can create a little tension. But my advice is to stay with it and over time, more than likely, you'll feel more relaxed. Okay, practice number two you could take with you. Here we go. Same way it's gonna start, which is just feeling your feet 
and body on the floor. Let's get that internal focus again, wherever you chose to do, whether eyes are closed or just drinking in through the eyes, just a, a, a meditative gaze. And this time, I'd like you to, once again, notice your breathing, your inhale, and your exhale without commenting on it, without judging it. You may notice that the inhale is either shorter or longer than the exhale. Doesn't matter right now. And in a moment or so, I'm gonna give you some instruction on how to breathe. So we're gonna count our breaths. And we're gonna inhale to a count of four. Inhale to a count of four. And you can do about one uh, second per, per breath or thereabouts. So inhaling two, three, four, and then just exhale, let go without counting. Good, once again, inhale, two, three, four. Hold it, hold the inhaled breath for a moment. Hold it. And now exhale and just let it go. Very good. Now we're going to inhale to a count of four, but we're going to exhale to a count of six. Inhaling to four and exhaling to six. Now you may need to slow down your count or speed up your count. Don't worry about that. But just make sure the ratio is such that we're inhaling to four and exhaling to six. Let's do that together. And inhale, two, three, Four, hold, exhale, two, three, four, five, six. Good, inhaling, two, three, four. Hold, two, three, exhale, two, three, four, five, six. Continue like that on your own, inhaling to four and exhaling to six. You may even exhale to seven, up to you. Breath should come through the nose if possible. Inhaling to four, exhaling now till seven, or maybe eight. Stay with it.
We'll listen to the sound of the chime just to end this practice. And you can open your eyes. So I have a challenge for you to take with you. I think if you exhale longer than you inhale, for just a, a few moments throughout the day, you'll change your brain. Just simple. If you practice exhaling longer than you inhale for a few times per week, per day, you will change your brain for the better. How many folks have felt a, a, a little bit of a serenity or a peaceful feeling as a result of the extended exhale? Great, great. It's just simple science. We're just moving into the parasympathetic. Wonderful. You guys did great. Just trying on a new exercise, perhaps, that you've never done before in a big setting like this. I really appreciate that. Thanks for playing with me with that. Great. So many other practices like this. Those are just two. There's about a thousand different types of breath control exercises that produce different mental and emotional states. Some are more energizing, can be very helpful with depression. There's a, a breath that comes from the East called Bostrika breath, which looks a little bit like this. <laughs> energizing, stimulates the brain and the nervous system. Good for depression. Not good for a clogged nose. Okay, <laughs> so the last thing, the last thing I want to share with you before we move on is decatastrophizing. And I told you I'd mentioned that. Um, what I'd like you to do, you could do this now or when you go home, if anyone's journaling. On the left side of the page, if you want to take a week to think about this or observe it, please do. Write down your top three to five catastrophizing thoughts. I can share, you, I can share with you some of mine. I'm a half a step away from homelessness. It's not true, I don't think, God willing, but it feels that way for me because of my, my past. We didn't have much. Or I'm gonna get a terrible disease. Or I'm not right with God. Or fill in the blank, whatever that is, your top five catastrophizing thoughts. On the right side of the page, Try to work on, and you might need to do a little research on this or meet with a counselor to talk more about this, changing the thought into something more reality-based and more probable. So one example I joke about is that one catastrophizing thought can be, everyone is against me. That's on the left side. So on the right side, you could say, not everyone's against me. Only three or four people are against me. But that would be doing the job. That would be decatastrophizing it, changing the level of it. And practice having those thoughts. Just the act of writing it down would be good. So that's your homework assignment. Other resources before we move to Q&A. Uh, for those of you who like apps, I really like Insight Timer. It's free. If you want to take a picture of this, I'm published on this site. They're all free. And these are some of what we did here. We did ratio breathing. That was the second practice. And that's up on there if you like to listen. I like to be guided when I do these uh, meditations and practices. 
And if you can tolerate my voice, those are the practices that I have on there. Um, Insight Timer is not a Christian app per se. However, there are Christian practices on there. It's, they have about 50,000 teachers from around the world, and you can just do a search. Um, there's many great teachers out there. They have music, they have talks on Christianity, they have Christian meditations, and it'll be your job to kind of tease out you know, what fits, what's biblical, and what works. There are a lot of non-Christian, secular kinds of practices there too, and other faiths, I have to tell you. Now, if you want a purely Christian app that's very good, I recommend Abide, and this has a free version and a paid version, just like Insight Timer, and very good, two to three minute little meditations that you can listen to in the morning, really, really nice way about these folks have a really nice way about them, delivering the word, but getting us into our breath and into our meditative spot. Okay. I think we are at Q&A, and I'll ask Namit to come up. I think we might have some questions from the audience. Thank you. some of you, it took a significant level of just contemplation and bravery to even ask your questions. And unfortunately, we can't get to all of them. Um, I had to make a top four just because of time permitting. Uh, but I promise we'll do our best to get back to you in some kind of capacity because I know it takes a lot to put yourself out there sometimes. And so if you don't have your question answered on this platform, trust and believe that the answer is still there. And if it's something that God wants you to know, you will know it. All right, uh, so we're just gonna go right into this. The and first I'll, one. And I'll do my best to give yeah. the best answer I can off the cuff, having not seen them, but <laughs> we'll see. So one that came in was, in what practical ways can we ease our anxiety that is known to be linked to physical injuries and diagnoses, such as traumatic, traumatic brain injuries, TBI, or fibromyalgia? So you spoke a lot about um, how the body and the mind are so interconnected. Um, but what about when there are some bodily things that do happen to us that our minds don't really pinpoint a certain trigger or a situation, such as these traumatic brain injuries or fibromyalgia? How do, how do we go about dealing with the anxiety that's caused with that? Yeah. Well, it's tricky with traumatic brain injury. I spent a little bit of time when I was at NYU Medical Center working with TBI. It has its own sort of course and process for treatment. And the reason why I say it's tricky is because when the brain itself has injury, we may be crossing into the line of how that general medical condition might be causing some anxiety for things like increased heart rate. I, I, I saw a patient not too long ago who got struck by a, um, in the New York City, they have the, those parking garages and those, like, those arms that come down. He was walking through and hit him, and he was getting uh, these, these strong heart palpitations and arrhythmias as a result probably of the traumatic brain injury, they think. But he was reporting that he wasn't very anxious in his day-to-day -day in terms of what we're talking about here today. So, uh, and it was very difficult to address those things. That's the tricky part. Um, the go-to parts is that I don't think we're too far adrift from what we talked about tonight on how to work with this. Uh, a lot of it with traumatic brain injury and medical illnesses is 
is learning to live a new life that where your, your medical condition or your injury is sitting side by side with you. At first, it may be a little bit of a fight. You want it to go away, you want to resolve it, you're resisting some kind of internal resistance about having a medical condition or some denial about having a brain injury. A lot of folks with brain injury have to discover that they can't uh, necessarily do the same things or think the same way that they were, but there's a lot of remediation that can occur. Yeah. So a lot of it is moving out of the denial, um, allowing yourself to have your illness sit alongside with it rather than battling it. That in and of itself can shave off some of the initial anxiety. And then things like relaxation strategies, looking at your diet, all the things that we mentioned would, would fit. Certainly counseling yeah. and all of those things. Gotcha. Uh, transitioning a little bit now. Uh, I struggle with significant anger and stress, but I can't remember what caused it, but I do know what triggers it today. How can I begin working on that? Hmm. Well, I don't, I don't think we need to necessarily know the cause to, to work on anxiety. Um, I think that it's probably always preferred to go a little bit deeper because you run the risk if you just go for addressing the symptoms of, of it rising up again and again and without getting at the root. It's almost like a weed if you just pull the top off, it's still growing from underneath. Mm -hmm. So my, my gut impression there would be to move into a counseling or psychotherapy situation, whether with a pastor or a licensed mental health practitioner because you can sometimes make the link as to uh, where it's originating from. And sometimes even just having an understanding of where it comes from can, can alleviate symptoms. Not always, but, but sometimes, and it's a good, it's a good start. Gotcha. Is it possible to develop psychosis from stress and anxiety? And if so, is that treatable? Hmm. I think anything's possible in this realm. Um, to give a, a more direct answer, there are cases of folks having genetic predisposition to things like schizophrenia or other psychoses where traumatic life events later in life or very stressful situation will sort of energize that disposition and you will see psychoses. I wouldn't say it's a common thing that just stress will lead to psychoses, like in just anyone, only with these predispositions that one has. And is it treatable? Absolutely. I think what the psycho psychology and psychiatry uh, fields are doing with psychoses now have been worlds ahead of even what was going on in the 50s and 60s. They've pinpointed things, the, the medications have gotten better, and there's been more of an openness in the psychotherapy world to work with psychoses, whereas in years past it was psychosurgery or, or electrical shock therapy or medications alone. So now there's lifestyle changes and integration and I think it's a great thing. Yeah. Uh, this one might take a while. Uh, how can I begin identifying bad coping mechanisms and learning how to transition them into better ones? Well, I, identifying bad coping, I think, um, I think relates very much to some Bible verses, which I probably don't have memorized, but 
looking to the fruits of one's actions, right? And how, how the fruits of our behaviors manifest. So if you're coping in a certain way and it's leading to positive outcomes, and by positive outcomes I mean better functioning socially, uh, better relationship with self, um, getting maybe positive and good feedback from those that you love and care about and respect, feeling good in the body and the mind, I'd say keep, keep doing them. All too often we develop uh, coping mechanisms that are not so healthy and can be destructive. And those ones I think we can maybe identify with, you know, we always go right to the drug and alcohol use, you know, when it's overused and, and really creating a lot of problems. Um, destructive behaviors can happen in the area of sex, eating, gambling, you name it. I think what would be trickier is the ones in the middle where, where you're not exactly sure if it's healthy or not. I can relate to my own life in that way in that when I was young, dealing with a lot of anxiety, I came up with uh, a very, very strong independent streak by virtue of my situation that helped me survive and actually helped me thrive. I mean, I had to leave home at 15, which was way too young, and have the pressure of you know, school and college and figuring all that on my own. But you can argue that, hey, you know, it got me to a place rather than being in prison, let's say, or some, you know, some kind of destructive life. I did graduate, I went on to schooling. But somewhere along the line, that strong suit can become a liability. Because where I've had to work is being able to lean on people and being able to ask for help. And that's how I came to know the Lord, actually, is to be, when I be, come to the end of myself and realize, oh wow, I actually have a Abba Father that, I can, that can be reliable. So I think there's coping mechanisms that can kind of fall in the middle that, that give us this impression that I don't want to get rid of that. That's what's worked for me all these years. But if you have a deep, hard look at it, you might say, is it still working? It's almost like a hammer is amazing, right, as a tool. It works really well for nails, and we just go around life nailing things into wood, but then all of a sudden we realize, oh, they're not nails all the time. There's sometimes there's screws, sometimes we need to saw something. <laughs> so we need to put our strong suit down and pick up another tool. That's another way to look at it. That's good. I mean, something that I can confess is uh, a really bad coping mechanism for me was serving. Serving? Serving, yeah, just oh, being serving. at church, being in, in areas of need, uh, because I would much rather help people deal with their problems than to work on my own. And yes. what on the outside, kind of like what you were saying, this, this drive, this independence that's so celebrated in our country, almost to an idolatrous amount, serving in some ways is like, oh, this is great. This person's always around. They love being here. And, you know, they're just, they love the Lord so much. Meanwhile, what I was doing was I was avoiding my family the whole time. And so, you know, kind of navigating through that, I think is, I think is awesome. It's a great example. Yeah. And, and, you know, who would argue with somebody who's serving? It's, it fits that example exactly, because it's a good thing right. on one level. But not everything is so easily split up into good and bad. It's sometimes um, a strength overused can become a weakness. Mm -hmm. And, you know, that sort of thing. That's awesome. Uh, should medicine be used as a last resort after I've done all of the other things that you talked about, diet, proper breathing, exercise, these sorts of things? Should I, should I wait for those things to fail and then try medicine, or, or should I be doing it in conjunction? What are your thoughts on that? This is a matter of severity, I think. Uh, I think if you can tolerate some level of discomfort with your anxiety and you're trying things and you're finding right away some movement there, 
you, you don't necessarily have to use medicine. But if your functioning is really disrupted and your anxiety is so severe, let's say that you, you can't function, you can't get out of the house, then don't wait. No, you can, there are good medicines out there that you can use temporarily in conjunction with all the suggestions that we, we have here today. And then there might be a time where you can taper off of those things. So it's really a matter of degree and a personal choice, but I tend to, to bristle at the idea that wait and sort of white knuckle it until, you know, you just can't take it anymore. I don't like to look at it like that. It's back to that holistic approach. I think there's a lot of fields that have a lot to offer here, so you can work in conjunction with one another. Yeah. Uh, another thing that came in, uh, positive psychology has been very popularized lately. You know, just be a better version of yourself and, you know, the, the, these sorts of things. Um, but I think that there is a little bit of hope that people look into that in saying, you know what, there are certain things I don't like about myself. There are certain uh, social anxieties that I feel. I'm, I'm generally more of a pessimist and these sorts of things. So um, how would you say is a healthy balance of this is how God has made you in some degree, but there are things that you can work on without kind of falling into either extreme? I'm 100% for working on oneself. I, I, I believe in it, I do it, I preach it in my, in my work with, with patients. However, what I've learned as I've gotten more mature for myself and more in my field is that if that's only being taught, then you run the risk of invalidating a person's experience. And it might not be so easy at any given moment in time or in life to improve oneself. So I think the balance has to do with the way we speak to ourselves. That's that intrapersonal level. So fine to keep working on yourself, fine to keep improving, but what's happening in the process when it's not going as expected? Are you beating yourself up? Is there a lot of self-blame? Is there a lot of uh, negative judgment? That we need to stay away from. I always say with, with uh, anxiety and depression, the symptoms itself, they're hard and they're challenging, but not nearly as difficult is the, um, as the meta-suffering that we do, which is the judgment about having it and, and the wagging of the finger that we do. And usually that's a voice from our past or maybe from society that we've learned to say, oh, you're, you're worthless and other people are you know, functioning so well or they don't have anxiety, they're so chill. Yeah. And that's really the area that we really have to stay on top of. Then it's just the symptoms that we can, you know, not, not to minimize the symptoms themselves, they're tough, but we can deal with them if we just look at it in a balanced and self-respecting way. Very cool. Uh, something that Asha said uh, earlier this morning was, we take on the qualities and the characteristics of God because we are made in his image, right? We're creative because God is creative. We're intelligent because God is intelligent. Some of us, God has imputed upon his characteristics of empathy and of counseling, and that edifies the body. And if God has given his gifts to humanity, our worship is what we do with those gifts. So can we just, um, from the bottom of our hearts, thank Dan for using his gifts tonight and blessing us all day today. Uh, Dan, on, on behalf of... On behalf of a church that is represented of so many different ethnic backgrounds, uh, so much different spiritual uh, and emotional and physical maturity, um, man, can I just say that this, this was a taste of heaven here. To see an area that has been so um, 
handled poorly at some times, neglected in other times, and then obsessed over in other times to be brought in such a healthy balance today. Um, can I just say how glad and how appreciative I am and we are of what you have done for us and just the way that you served us today. Dan did this for four services, stepped out, grabbed food, came back, and had this prepared. In, um, and please, let's give a hand to Namit, who facilitated this whole day. He's, I mean, I think if, talk about gifts. This guy is a facilitator, amazing. Thank you. Uh, before, I, before I hand it over to Pastor Steve, thank you. Uh, before I hand it over to, to Pastor Steve, uh, one uh, thing that I would love to say is uh, Dan is one person. Um, he's already booked when it comes to seeing him. Um, and so if you were thinking, I'm just going to schedule an appointment with Dan and he's going to solve all my problems and this is going to be good, um, can I just pacify that and say, yeah, let's, let's, let, let's, let's crucify that thought a little bit and hope it doesn't resurrect. Um, but, but... Resources for us are available. Resources are available. Um, if you are <coughs> contemplating talking to a counselor, seeking professional help, we believe in that. We endorse that. Um, we believe that there is a part of the kingdom of God um, where that is accessible to us. And so uh, we have a list of counselors within the area that you can speak to, that you can go and, and, and find. And you know what? You may try one counselor, and that doesn't work for you. You can try another counselor, and, and you can... Um, almost like shop around, not to be super consumeristic, but you can shop around a little bit. Uh, but if you were to call our office tomorrow morning uh, or, or any point this week, uh, you can get a list of counselors that are um, known by us and, and we support and believe in that you can continue on your mental health journey in conjunction with everything that Dan talked about uh, today and, and what the panel spoke about as well. Uh, so without further ado, can you give it up for Pastor Steve as he comes forward? Thank you. Um, just to kind of wrap this all up and um, say thank you for coming tonight. We're going to continue next week to talk about uh, dealing with stress and anxiety in your life. Um, but as a shepherd, as the shepherd of this house, you know, just thinking about some of the things that Dr. Dan said, just kind of processing in my mind, I want to encourage you a few things. Number one, be biblical and be selective. Um, be biblical as a Christian and be selective. Um, but in being biblical and selective, um, be proactive in dealing with your anxiety. Um, because so many of us, we are just dying on the inside because we're afraid. And so I want to encourage you to come out of the closet when it comes to anxiety come out of the closet of fear of being found out that you're struggling with anxiety. Um, it is, it is a, a known fact today in our world that 40 million people have an anxiety disorder. That doesn't mean that there is not a lot of other people that are dealing with fear and anxiety. We live in the last days. And this wonderful tool that we have has created such anxiety in us, social media, the TV, the immediate reports and news that come our way, 9-11 has changed our world, changed our world. And terrorism, the fear of finances, we know that we're not living in a safe world any longer. The bubble was burst on 9-11. 
and it has affected all of us. And Dr. Dan said something very important, and that is that trauma has probably occurred to every one of us in this room, and we don't even realize how much trauma we've been under because of the news, because of terrorism, because of our changing world. But I want you to also know this one thing. God is still very much in control. And, and I want you to understand this. God promises you as a believer, as a child of God, that he will finish the work that he began in you. And when I went through my time, 25 years old, loved Jesus with all my heart, panic attack, anxiety, had to deal with my past, God had to heal all of that stuff in me and still working on some of the areas of my life because there's residue that kind of sticks to us because we're still battling with the flesh, you know? Folks, we still have to battle with the flesh in our life. When we get to heaven, we won't have to battle with the flesh anymore. But right now, we battle with the flesh. And what is the flesh? The flesh is the old way of thinking. So don't discredit the mind. The Bible never discredits the mind. In fact, the Bible tells us that we are to be renewed, okay, in our mind. We're to be transformed by the renewing of our mind. Paul the Apostle tells us that one of the first things we need to do as Christians is retrain our mind to begin to think differently because our attitude is made up of a composite of three things, what we think, how we feel, and how we operate. And so we've got to recognize that God has given us a brain. Don't discredit the fact that we need to retrain how we think. You talk to yourself more than anyone else talks to you. You talk to yourself more than anyone else talks to you. And so much of what we say to ourselves comes from trauma, comes from our flesh, comes from our pain, comes from the things that we've picked up along the way. And God wants you to begin to retrain your mind so that you might be transformed, Paul says, in the attitude of your mind. Amen? So don't discredit the mind. See, a lot of Christians, they go off of the spirit and emotions, and they want so desperately to be delivered through their emotions more than anything else, emotions, not even the spirit realm. And um, there's a lot of Christians that are more emotional than they are spiritual and, and, and even psychological. So we need to recognize that. Don't discredit at all what Pastor Dan, uh, Dr. Dan did. Uh, that's prophetic, you know, because you're going to be a doctor, pastor. You do it all. Don't discredit breathing. Now, uh, Dr. Dan said, how many of you felt calmer? I got to tell you, you're really cool with that breathing stuff, man. I was thinking, wow. Okay, take your belly button out. <laughs> notice, even his, notice even his voice changed. You know, it's like, okay, now we're going to go into breathing exercises. Put your finger on your, and breathe. Breathe. I was like, wow. Feel good. I knew I would. Um, don't discredit, though, the power of breathing. My phone, my, my eye, my, actually my, my watch. I don't know how many of you have an eye watch, but what do they call that? Uh, Apple watch. 
Every once in a while I see it buzzing, and it's like, breathe, Pastor Steve, breathe. Don't, God gave you a system. He gave you a body. Listen to me. Your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit. God gave you this body. And we keep on abusing the body, and we wonder why we're so anxious. Our body is in connection with our mind and our spirit and our soul. Don't discredit breathing. Now, be very careful. Some yoga goes into places that are not biblical whatsoever. And I think Dr. Dan will absolutely agree with that. He said that, right? So be mature as a Christian. Be careful, but doesn't mean that you need to discredit movement, exercise, breathing exercise. Some people, you were freaking out when, when Dr. Dan started talking, breathing, what is that? Is that, is that, is that transcendental meditation? Is that demonic? No, it's breathing. <laughs> you're already doing it, and you're doing it wrong. Most people in this room breathe wrong. And because you breathe wrong, it brings on unnecessary anxiety in your life. So you have to retrain yourself how to breathe the way God created you to breathe. And God created you to breathe like this. Put your hand on your belly button. Here and out. So if you have a problem hearing Dr. Dan say it, hear God say it. Okay, stop. Be still. Know that I am God. And just breathe. And just breathe. Amen? Praise the Lord. Let's just. God uses all kinds of wonderful things. Every good gift comes from above. Don't get so super spiritual sometimes that you don't, you're not any good for yourself. That doesn't mean you open yourself up to unbiblical things. It just means that God, he lives within a world sometimes that we have never experienced because we're just afraid of experiencing it. Amen? Let's just stand to our feet. And let's just do one last thing. No? Raise your hand. And can we just worship Jesus for a moment? Can we work? Come on, let's just raise our hands. Close your eyes and worship the Lord tonight. Say, thank you, Lord. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you, Lord.